everyone, and welcome to another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. So happy to have you with me, as always. Um, this podcast has been something that I look forward to each and every week, and it's a really fun time of year. We have major Kentucky Derby prep races coming up. We have another big two-year-old sale coming up at the Phasic Tipton Gulfstream sale, and we're wrapping up the Gulfstream Park Championship meet. And I mentioned that, as most of you know, I think at this point, I am the uh, TV handicapper and paddock reporter at Gulfstream Park. So the last few months have been all focused on the championship for me, the championship meet, as we're getting ready to wrap that up already this weekend with the Florida Derby. And then right after that, I will pack up my life in typical racing nomadic lifestyle and head on north up to New York, join the crew for the Aqueduct Spring Meet, Get ready to kick off Belmont. We have the Wood Memorial coming up next week. And of course, looking ahead to all of those fantastic races up in New York. I'll be so excited to join the Fox Sports America's Day at the Races crew once again with Naira. So if you are uh, hoping to watch on TV, you can catch me there. Looking forward again uh, to get back to doing all of that. It's always a lot of fun working with that crew, but I certainly will miss my Florida Gulfstream family. But don't worry, we've got a lot to wrap up here at Gulfstream and in Florida first. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Florida Derby on this show with the, the owner of a very interesting runner, looking at uh, some of the sales still to come this year and looking back on some of the championships from this past year as well. I've got a jam-packed show today, some spectacular guests, and as always, really happy to have you all along for the ride. I hope you enjoy. I am so very excited about my next guest coming up. Um, I've teased a big guest coming on the show for a little bit the last week or so, and it's just somebody that I've been really excited to talk to and somebody I very much admire in the industry as well, um, and somebody whose name has been in quite a few headlines over the past couple of years. Very pleased to welcome in the one and only Liz Crow. Liz, thank you so much for coming on and, and agreeing to do this with me. Wow, Acacia, thank you so much for the introduction. That's very nice of you. Um, I'm very happy to be here. I uh, I actually did a podcast a couple weeks ago where I said I try to prepare for a sale like Acacia prepares for the uh, races at Gulfstream. So um, I admire you as well. I appreciate you having me on. Well, that means a lot. Thank you very much for that. Um, so you are, of course bloodstock agent involved in the sales, both on the buying side and selling side. Um, I want to go back to the beginning, not just kind of the beginning of, of you being in the spotlight with Monomoy Girl, but you getting into wanting to be a bloodstock agent and wanting to be a big presence at the sales. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, this industry, um, you know, offers so many different uh, opportunities. You know, you could mm -hmm. be an on-air analyst, you could be a trainer, you could be, um, you know, I was never the right size to be a jockey, but that was an <laughs> option for some people. Um, and I, I kind of went through all the different uh, jobs. I worked in the racing office. Um, I worked on a farm prepping yearlings. Um, I did night watch at one point and, and um, you know, for mayor's foaling. And then I moved to California after college and I worked for uh, Owen Hardy, and I was, you know, started out as a hot walker and kind of worked my way up to an assistant and realized um, pretty quickly that while I loved being around horses, that I really hated the 3 a.m. wake up call. And, um, you know, I liked having a day off, you know, every couple months would be nice. So um, 
realized that wasn't it. And I went to the sales and, and kind of everything clicked. Um, I loved that it all, it brought everything together that I had learned in one uh, arena. And um, I loved the idea of trying to find, you know, the next good athlete that um, could win races and feel connected to that. And um, I, I loved the energy and the, um, in the sales arena and, um, and the travel and just uh, watching your horse from, when the time it was a yearling, you know, and the time it runs. And so, um, yeah, I think it was like my first Keeneland September sale. And I don't even remember when that would have been like 2010 or something where I realized mm -hmm. that that was what I wanted to do. And what were your emotions like at, at that first sale? Were you nervous, you know, spending other people's money? What, what was kind of that thought process like? Well, I started out working for Pete Bradley, so I wasn't personally spending anyone's money, which was a good thing. <laughs> um, I remember being terrified, though. To, I was following him around. I didn't want to say or do the wrong thing. Um, you're just I'm just trying to pick up everything he was uh, talking about. And, and um, he was working with Eddie Woods, who's someone that I really, really admire in the industry and I think is is one of the sharpest horsemen out there. And um, learning from him and, and learning from Pete and watching their process of picking out horses. Um, I was just trying to soak it all in. Um, but then, you know, my very first, I went out on my own, I think it was the end of 2015. So my first Keeneland September was 2016 and um, Saul Cumin and 10 strike were the first guys to give me a shot. And yeah, you're terrified. I mean, you just want to go in there and you so badly want to do a good job for them. You know, people that really entrusted you, you know, with their money and, um, yeah, it was just like, I was like, how hard can I work? You know, I, I just, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's just like, you want to do good so badly. Um, and I remember that feeling and I, I try to kind of hang on to that feeling throughout all these mm -hmm. sales now and not, not lose that, you know, excitement of that first sale. Yeah. I guess that that's an interesting concept too. I mean, does it kind of get not that you get used to that feeling, but the sales ring is so electric. And um, I would imagine, you know, now you may have a little bit more of a budget than when you started out too. Um, how does it kind of compare now to then? I think you get more comfortable with the whole, whole process. I've, mm -hmm. I've learned that organization and just, like I said, being prepared is almost as big of a part of it as anything. And so I've, I feel better now that I've done it for so many years. Um, I feel more confident in myself and, um, but I still, you still get that feeling of, of being, you realize that you, someone has entrusted you with a big responsibility and, um, that never goes away that feeling. And, and when it does is when I should stop doing this because mm -hmm. it's a really important, it's important to remember that every time you, you go in there is, um, trying to do the best job for your client you possibly can, whether they give you a budget of, you know, 30,000 in book five, or they give you a budget of, you know, a million. Um, I, I signed my first million dollar ticket this year, hmm. um, with into mischief Philly. And, um, I think the feeling of signing a ticket for a million or the feeling of signing a ticket for 30,000, it's still a horse and, um, hmm. you know, still has every shot to, to do well. So it's an exciting feeling. Do you ever still kind of second guess yourself and in, in questioning your gut instinct on a person? a particular horse or maybe if a horse may be the value of what do you think it might sell for? Absolutely. I mean, there's no, no doubt that every time you, you go to bid on a horse, um, 
you think through as the horse is coming up the ring, you think, okay, there's a hole in everything, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. either you're buying a a sire that you don't know anything about. Maybe it's a freshman sire. Maybe it's a sire like when I bought British Idiom, she was by flashback. And um, you're like, gosh, you know, he really hasn't done anything. (laughs) And he stands in Pennsylvania. You can pretty much get to him for a thousand dollars. And here you are, you're willing to spend 50, 60,000 on this filly. You're at the end of the day, when, when you're signing that ticket, you were the only person in that entire sales ring that thought that horse was worth that much money. There is not Mm -hmm. one other person that thought the horse was worth what you're paying for it or else they would have been bidding it that amount of money. So you kind of feel like you're signing the ticket. Like, what did I just do? You know, (laughs) but um, I think the key to being an agent too, is to have confidence in yourself and to trust your ability. Because if you don't, you know, I think it's the same as training horses or anything. You have to trust Mm -hmm. yourself. And um, so I try, I try to, it's that walking on that line of being confident, but also remembering, you know, that you don't know everything. For sure. And you uh, signed a pretty reasonable ticket for $100,000 at the 2016 Keeneland September yearling sale. And that horse would go on to become the queen, Monomoy girl. Uh, uh, what does she mean to you and how she put you on the map? Oh, gosh. I, I can't say enough about her. I mean, mm-hmm. she's just such a an amazing horse. Really, I get chills just talking about her. Um, she's just such an amazing horse to be involved with. And I feel like I got so lucky to be, you know, to sign that ticket and, um, and have her be a part of, uh, launching my career and, and launching Brad Cox's career and, and, um, Paul Sharp who broke her and just the amount of people she helped and lifted up, um, every time she runs, uh, I think that's, what's great about racing. You know, every time she runs, she's helping all of us. And, um, she just means the world to me. Um, actually had, um, you know, my, my baby was born uh, five weeks ago and I had a, a picture, mm-hmm. her newborn pictures we had done on the Monomoy Girl Saddle Towel. So she's, she's part of the Aww. family. She's, she's one of us. Um, and, and will forever be, uh, one of the most important horses in, in my life. I've heard she's not that friendly in the stall though. <laughs> nope, not at all. <laughs> um, there's so many people that have texted me and said, you know, I went by to see Monomoy Girl and she, she bit me. I have a, I have a, <laughs> you know, bruise on my arm. Um, if you don't bring peppermints, she wants nothing to do with you. <laughs> fantastic. So she has as much spirit back in the barn as she does on the racetrack as well. Um, tell me a little bit about the process of, of looking through that Keeneland September sale and finding her and what stood out about her? Um, well, a lot of things um, stood out about her physically, but I, I always say, like, I think mentally is what she re- really drew me to her. Um, she was, it had rained the day before and it was, we were kind of all, all the agents and all the owners and everything that we're looking at horses were all piled up down in the bottom barns. And so you're waiting for ring spots and there's so much commotion and there's all these horses um, jumping around and um, she just walked out like she owned the place. she, she didn't care about what was going on around her. She was so confident in herself. And I couldn't tell if it was confidence or just like laziness. She was just so calm. <laughs> um, and you see that in her every day. While she's feisty in her stall, she's complete all business on the track, walking to and from the track. I have literally never seen her, you know, turn a hair wrong. She's just <laughs> so relaxed and knows her job. And, and that's kind of how she came off to me at the sale. 
Um, and then on top of it, she's a gorgeous mare. Um, I just, when we sold her, when Elite Sales sold her in, in November for 9.5 million to Spendthrift and, and my racehorse, um, so many people came by and they were like, wow, what an amazing physical this, this mare is. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just so beautiful. And these are great judges that are coming by and saying that, you know, lots of, of good agents. So I think physically she had it all. And I just got lucky that her pedigree page didn't dictate that she was supposed to bring mm-hmm. more than a hundred thousand. How do you kind of find that balance between the physical and the pedigree when you are looking for some of those bargains? Yeah. I mean, to me, pedigree doesn't really matter. Um, mm-hmm. and that's probably cause I started with nothing is, is in no, no mm-hmm. real budget. And it, that's to anyone that ever were to listen to this outside of horse racing, they'd say, how is a hundred thousand? Nothing. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but as we know in, in racing, it's kind of a lower end budget, um, when you're at the sales or just like a medium budget. So, um, I couldn't buy a tap it, you know, I couldn't buy, um, a quality road or something like that. I couldn't afford that. So I really didn't want to give up the physical athlete that um, I was looking for. I wanted to find something that was a really strong physical. And then the pedigree, you know, was just hopefully not that good. So I wouldn't have to pay that much money. And that's kind of how I still do things today. Obviously there's certain clients that want certain pedigrees and they, Mm -hmm. They might say, no, I really want to build my broodmare band, Um, you know, go find me some really nice pedigrees. But for the most part, I'm looking for the athlete and I honestly get excited when it's an, it's a pedigree that's not um, super high end because then I know I can get a little bit of a bargain price. Uh, Did I read too that at Keeneland, when you bought Monway Girl for that 100,000, they spelled your name wrong? They did. They did. (laughs) And I also got an email from them as I was leaving the sales ring that was like, please come to the credit office immediately. Um, you don't have any credit. And <laughs> I was like, Oh no. Um, but I went in there and said, I'm buying for Saul Cumin. And they of course said, no problem. You know, I guess I, I was just, um, a little green that I didn't have all the paperwork filled out, you know, and everything. But, um, yeah, my, my name was spelled C R O W E. And, um, it was it was actually wrong for the first two years of her career on like Equibase when you were oh, no. we finally got that fixed. <laughs> I would hope so. I and then that that brings me to my next question because you're you're a woman in a bloodstock agent business, not just in the world of racing, where you kind of have to break into a certain level, but I think this is even more niche that you see that kind of amplified. Were there any sort of challenges for you in being a, a young woman in, in breaking into that and getting people to trust you with their money? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. You know, the one thing I will say is I always feel like I've been treated very nice and fair mm-hmm. in this industry. Um, I've had a, a lot of people give me opportunities that I'm really thankful for. And so I definitely don't want to play, you know, the card that I was you know, mistreated or anything mm-hmm. like that. I was given so many great opportunities by so many people, but I will say, I mean, you know how it is. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's a male dominated industry and that's no secret. And I think you have to work a little bit harder to be taken seriously. And that's just a fact, um, unfortunately. And so I think I worked, um, a little extra hard and to get myself, uh, noticed. And I was, I think it took, you know, a couple big horses to, um, get my name out there and, 
I think that obviously that's something that most agents struggle with when they first start out, start out is mm-hmm. try to get your name out there and try to get some recognition and you need a runner early on. And um, it's just, it's uh, something that is a little bit of a struggle, I think in the beginning. And I, I do think as you see the next generation come up, you're seeing more and more females, which is really an exciting thing to see. Um, I've noticed that more and more, you know, there's some younger in the, you know, just women just out of college that are showing a lot of interest in the industry. And I'm seeing that more and more. And that's, that's cool to see. Yeah, it really is very exciting to see. And, um, and it's, it's fantastic to see, like you said, women that have just worked really hard and deserve it and deserve all the accolades that they're getting. And, um, I wanted to ask too about, you working on the sales side of things, not just buying, but also selling as you and Brad Wiseboard with not only BSW Bloodstock, but Elite Sales have created kind of an empire in a very short time and and had some huge horses go through the ring under that banner. Um, Tell me a little bit about that partnership and some of the excitement that that has brought. Yeah, Elite has been so much fun. Um, I've really, really enjoyed it. It was uh, my partner's idea Brad Weisford, and um, he came up with the concept at kind of at the end of 2016, early 2017. And um, I remember when he first told me, I thought, there's no way we don't have time to do both these things well. <laughs> and um, But the boutique model that we kind of incorporated is um, no yearlings, no weanlings, you know, no foals, nothing like that. We wanted to do what we're good at, and that's we believe we know racing really well. Um, we're constantly trying to buy horses privately through our bloodstock agency, and we're watching racing all day, every day. And we just feel like we're we're always at the racetrack. Brad spends his winters down at Gulfstream and his summers in Saratoga, and he's at Belmont a lot, and I'm at Oaklawn and Fairgrounds, and you know the Kentucky circuit a lot. So we felt like some of the racehorses and stuff weren't being very well represented at, at auction. They could, there was, there could be more information offered to buyers. So, you know, we came up with these buyers passports where we kind of put all the PPs and rags and sheets and race replays in one spot. So someone like, you know, a, a Brad Cox or a Todd Pletcher or something that they don't have a lot of time to look all this stuff up. They need mm-hmm. to come into the sale. They need to have it all right there for them. And they need to be able to feel confident about the information they're getting. So you know, we came up with the idea of the, of the passports and um, it's turned into a really uh, great business where I think we've, we've sold a lot of, um, you know, stakes horses and we, we sold a couple graded stakes horses and it's turned into um, in November selling these big time mares and, and who knows mom and white girl and, and uni better than we do. You know, we campaigned them for their career and it feels good to stand out there at the consignment and tell buyers all about them and be able to tell them all the information that that we know and um, really owe a lot to the owners that supported us because you can't, you can't jump to the level we jump to without their support Um, to have, you know, Mike Dove and Saul Cuman and Stuart Grant say, you guys know what you're doing here. The, here are the racehorses. You go ahead and sell them. Um, That was really, really great of them and, and was the reason we're able to be, um, kind of one of the leading consigners. And those owners you mentioned, you really seem to have such a great relationship with them and a very successful one at that. And obviously, Monomoy Girl now with new owners, she's still racing, which is amazing for racing fans. But you have a, a new star coming up the pipeline, um, an Aunt Pearl, who won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies turf. 
I mean, how exciting is it to know that you have one champion that's established herself and is older and moving on to the next phase and you have a two-year-old, now three-year-old, who's just kind of following in the footsteps of being in those big grade one ra- grade one races? Yeah, it's, it's really fun. I was, you know, we went to Tattersalls in October 2019, pre-COVID, and it was really fun to go over there and try to pick out you know, something that could run in America and, um, to have her work out as our first, um, deal over there was, was really, really cool. And I think we're, we're aiming to maybe bring her back to, um, back over the pond to Ascot and hopefully that works out. Um, we're kind of pointing her for the Edgewood and then, um, hoping that she runs well and stays sound and everything and we can springboard over to the, um, to Ascot and, and run over there. And, that would just be, wouldn't everyone like to see Brad Cox in a top hat? And um, yes. <laughs> and uh, I think it'd be really fun. So hopefully that works out and um, she can have a big three-year-old campaign. And tell me a little bit about your experience at the Tattersall sale and buying there. And you mentioned looking for a horse that would suit running in America. What were some of those things that you were looking for? Well, first of all, the auction experience over there is, it's so different than our experience. Mm-hmm. It's really something everyone should go experience. Um, you know, they take like 30 minutes to sell a horse. And in America, if you don't get your hand up fast enough, you know, they might drop the hammer on you. So it's a totally different experience. Um, they walk the horses the whole time in a circle while they're selling them. And the auctioneer gets really into it and he starts calling people out in the sales ring. <laughs> and um it took, I mean, there are several times when I was bidding where I thought, okay, we got this horse bought hundred thousand. I feel great about that. And then all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, they're still selling the horse and said a million dollars and, you know, Sheikh Mohammed's buying it. And, you know, in America, you can tell right away the way they start the auction. If they start in 2000, 3000, 4000 or 10,000, 20,000, you kind of know where you're at. You, mm-hmm. you understand very quickly how much this horse is going to bring. And over there, it just takes so much longer. So that was an interesting learning curve. And, um, just the sales grounds in general are incredibly confusing to get around. Um, so that was another uh, fun hurdle, but as far as like what to look for, um, you know, I was just looking for a really, um, good hind leg and a strong physical because you, you really need to, these horses train on the dirt 99 days out of hundred. I mean, they, mm-hmm. most horses can't breeze on the turf unless they're at like Payson or Palmettos or, up in Saratoga in the summer, most of the time they need to breeze on the dirt. So I was looking for a horse that could handle the dirt and and had power and didn't look like a kind of a weaker looking, you know, three turn turf horse. And Aunt Pearl was a powerful, uh, great hind leg, you know, a strong shoulder. And so she checked those boxes. She's so imposing to look at. And it seems like as she came to the Breeders' Cup. Mentally, she really almost caught up with her body. I mean, tell me a little bit about her progression because the first time I saw her there at Keeneland for the Breeders' Cup, I was just like, you know, watching replays, you could see it. And then you look at her and you're like, wow, she is just such a presence to her physically. Mm-hmm, totally. Well, she, you should just wait till you see her this year if you're going <laughs> for the Edgewood because she went to Paul Sharp for a little freshening um, over the winter and she looks amazing. She grew a couple inches. She's really filled out and muscled up. And, um, you love to see that because, you know, sometimes when these horses don't move forward physically from two to three or three to four, you worry a little bit about them. And it was kind of like Monomoy girl. I mean, if you look at pictures of her when she was early days and now she looks 
a lot different. She's really muscled up and kind of Aunt Pearl's going through that, went through that same good transition that you like to see. Um, and I think, you know, mentally she's, she's high strong, but Brad Cox always says she, she's really good at handling her job and she, she knows her job and she enjoys it. It's not like she's too high strung to train or too high strung to be around. She's just enough, you know, to where, um, she puts that energy into her, her breezes and her gallops and, and her races. And I think you can see that, um, she's mentally really focused on what she does. Talk me through if you can put it into words, what it's like watching a horse that you chose win a race like the Breeders' Cup. Yeah, it's it's um, terrifying when they walk in the gate. You know, you you have such high hopes and you've run through the race a hundred times in your head and how it could play out. And um, so as soon as the gates open, you know, my heart is just pounding out of my chest and I'm kind of pacing around. Um, I'm not a very Brad Weisbord kind of makes fun of me because he's like, you can't do anything about the result of the race. <laughs> like you, you're not riding the horse. You didn't train it. Like calm down, just sit there and watch your horse run. <laughs> But I can't, I, you know, I just get so amped up and um, I had my whole family there for the Breeders' Cup, which was really fun. And we we all watched it down with Brad's team downstairs on the TVs, on the apron. And um, when you realize that they've had a good enough trip to win, you're, you kind of know, as one does, it's, watches a lot of racing. I'm sure as an analyst, you're, you kind of know if the horse you picked halfway through has any mm-hmm. shot at all. And so when you get that feeling that they set a good enough trip, like when Aunt Pearl went the half and not a crazy time during the Breeders' Cup, you start to get really excited, like this could happen. And, um, you know, they turn for home and you, I think I put as much energy into the, the stretch as Florent does, because I'm like jumping and screaming and, you know, um, I, I, by the end of the whole thing, I'm, I'm like sweating and, and my heart's pounding, but it's so much fun. There's just not another sport out there. I don't think that provides that kind of energy and excitement in such a short period of time. Um, from the, you know, the eighth pole to the wire, uh, you see grown men act crazy and, you know, I act crazy and, uh, it's just so much fun. I love it. There really is. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing that compares to that feeling of watching your horse win, especially in a big race. And you've, had some incredible achievements in a relatively short amount of time. What are some things that you still hope to accomplish? Well, you have to say the Kentucky Derby, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, I would love to do the walkover and I really haven't had the opportunity to buy a lot of Colts. Um, I bought, I've had a lot of people give me a lot of great opportunities to buy Phillies. And um, this year I feel like was maybe one of the first times I got to buy some a little bit more expensive Colts. So I'm excited to maybe, hopefully at some point, have that shot. Um, We had Wells Bayou win the Louisiana Derby last year, and I felt like, great, you know, maybe we'll at least have a Derby starter. That's so exciting. But then COVID and everything, so the Derby got pushed back to September. Of course, he got hurt. Um, So that was disappointing. But, um, yeah, the Kentucky Derby would be really high up on the list. And um, I would also uh, love to win – some of those other grade ones, maybe like the champagne for two-year-old, two-year-olds mm-hmm. or, um, you know, dirt Colts would be really fun to, to go down that road and try to win some of those races. So hopefully we can do that in the next couple of years. And what advice would you give to people who are maybe younger and getting into the industry and kind of circling back to what we talked about at the beginning and especially people who might be interested in being bloodstock agents, you know, how do you take it all in stride? What are maybe some tips that you might pass along? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think I think there's a place for everybody that wants to be in this industry. And I always encourage people to keep trying different avenues like I did, you know, try all of them out, try to get experience in everything. Um, when you're a bloodstock agent, you're the culmination of, of so many different things. You know, you need to know about mares and, and breeding and, um, you know, racing. And don't think you can just jump in the bloodstock industry and skip the racing part. I mean, mm-hmm. you need to go do your time on the racetrack and really fully understand everything that goes into getting a racehorse prepared to run in a race because when you're a bloodstock agent, obviously your goal is then eventually to get that horse to the races. So I think work really hard and try to take every opportunity you can. And I mean, work harder than the next person. And I think hard work and um, wanting to do this seven days a week, this is not a five day a week job. And this is not um, something you can just turn off when you get home. You kind of need to be really, really passionate about it. So if you have passion and hard work, Um, there's definitely a spot for you if you work hard enough. I love that. And such wonderful advice. Liz, it was such a pleasure having you on and I really, really enjoyed it. And I I can't say thank you enough for coming on to join me today. Absolutely. It was a blast. I'll talk to you anytime. And um, hopefully, (laughs) you know, in a year or so we're doing this again and I can talk about like a derby horse or something. (laughs) For sure. We're putting it out into the universe. I love that. Very excited to be joined now by a special guest and fellow podcaster as well, Shana Tiller, just recently appointed as the new sales and marketing client liaison with Margot Farm. Shana, thank you for joining me and congratulations on the new position. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be on. So tell me a little bit about what the new job, which you'll be starting on March 23rd. Tell me about what it entails in um, dealing with the client liaisons, but also uh, the sales side of things. Definitely. So Margot Farm, for people who aren't familiar, is a large breaking and trading farm uh, based in Midway, Kentucky. Uh, they've really grown in the last couple of years since Jim and Susan Hill have taken over full ownership of the property. Um, and it's a multifaceted uh, property. They have training services, breaking services, a full therapy center. Um, they have broodmares, foaling, uh, they do yearling prep. So it's really all encompassing, which is really special. Uh, so in part of my role is to, uh, you know, liaise the clients that have horses there. They can train up to 140 horses a day at times. So there's definitely quite a bit of traffic and quite a bit of information to be passed along. The trainer there is Dermot Littlefield, who's been there for over seven years, and he has his hands full enough sometimes, uh, much less dealing with the clients as well. So I'm going to be working really closely with him and then the general manager, Richard Budge. Uh, They have a great group of clients there. So that's going to be my main role. But they also want to grow out the farm and try to recruit some new business uh, and and look for it in that way. So I think it'll be a nice combination of what I've done in the past and really looking forward to getting back into the racing side. And you mentioned some of the things that you've done in the past, uh, recently working with Blue Water Sales, Millridge Farm. You also did the Irish National Stud Course. Tell me a little bit about some of those past experiences and now prepping with all of those things that you've done now into this new role. 
Well, definitely. So I did not grow up in a horse racing family at all. If I were a horse in the sale, I'd have three blank dams in that regard. So I've kind of been trying to build my own resume of sorts. And when you first get into racing, it's pretty overwhelming. And I looked around at these people who have grown up in the industry and have gotten to do so many different things. I'm like, gosh, I got to catch up with them, you know? And Mm. so I, uh, I tried to just reach as many different parts of the industry as possible. My first real taste of the highest level of the sport was with the Saratoga special. And that changed my whole world, uh, seeing horses that were competing in grade ones that you see on TV and these trainers. And, you know, Todd Fletcher was one of my first interviews. And I remember going up to him shaking when I first did that. And it just changed my whole perspective. So from there, I went on, um, I worked for Phasing Tipton and then got onto the Irish National Stud course, which I couldn't recommend more for someone trying to get uh, in the game especially for young people it exposes you to so much and teaches you more about horsemanship and the industry than I really think you can get anywhere else Uh, and I was lucky when I came back to America to work with Meg Levy at Blue Water she's one of the best horsemen I've been around and her attention to detail was incredible so I did a sales season with them uh, before accepting a job at Millridge Farm which is more of an old school uh, approach to raising horses so it was interesting to have those two experiences with the sales seasons um, and now a lot of those clients are moving on to being at Margo and in, in the next step of things with getting their horses broken and trained. So um, I think understanding, you know, where the horses come from, from foals to yearlings and now progressing into the race horses is going to be a huge advantage to me in this position. What was it first about racing that really appealed to you? Is I, I'm in the same boat, not coming from a racing family. It can be very daunting breaking into the world of racing. Oh, definitely. Um, I grew up going to Laurel Park when I was younger. I, my family uh, is still there about 15 minutes from the track. And both my parents are from Bowie, Maryland. So they kind of grew up going to the track a little bit for fun with friends on the weekend. And my dad used to take me with him. And I remember just seeing the horses go by and it's just visually so impressive. You know, they're these massive creatures and you can hear the sound of them thundering down the track. And so I got hooked from a pretty young age. And then I think when I really decided, wow, this is what I want to do was actually Songbird in the coaching club American Oaks years ago. Um, I was at Saratoga up on the roof when she just blasted by everyone. It was no competition. And I was like, gosh, where did she come from? You know, and from there, it kind of snowballed. So I'd say it's always been there, but definitely keeps kind of growing as I get more involved in the sport. And with that involvement, to circle back to the Irish National Stud course, Mm -hmm. I feel like this is one of a pro of of several programs available um, that comes up in talking about this show and prepping for working in in the world of sales or really anything in racing. Um, Dive into it a little bit more for me because I, it's not a program that I did, but I know many people that, that have completed it and always speak so highly of the program. What are some of the kinds of things that you were involved in during your time with Irish National Stud? So uh, the Irish National Stud Course is a six-month program based in Kildare, Ireland, and they select 30 people from all over the world to do the course. Uh, It's 15 Irish and 15 international students. I'd never been to Europe or been exposed to any type of um, international racing, really, before I had done the course. So I think really the biggest thing I personally got out of it was just learning about European racing and learning about racing in Australia and Japan and 
all of my peers educated me in a different way every single day outside of just the curriculum in the course. Uh, but for the course itself, uh, they rotate you through different aspects of the stud management. So some days you're in the stallion barn and you're breeding mares, and then other days you're on night shift for a week and you're foaling out. Um, they full out nearly 200 mares a year, I think it is, because they have a pretty big uh, equine hospital there. So you kind of work in these different aspects of the stud farm, as well as having evening lectures from industry professionals. We had a bunch of really in-depth veterinary lectures, as well as uh, different guests working in bloodstock or feed companies or marketing and promotions. And so they really exposed us to so, so much in the industry at large, as well as taking us to different facilities in Europe. Uh, we went to Con Renan's, which was one of my favorite places to go, as well as Jim Bolger's. And just seeing the way they train horses there is so different than it is in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very inspiring. It makes you, you know, you want to be a horse there almost. <laughs> so it was great. And you get I mean, the knowledge and connections that I came out of it with are just priceless. And it's actually been really neat, too, coming out of the course, seeing how many people have completed it that are working in the top part of the industry now that you wouldn't even know had done it. They did it 20 years ago. So you kind of form a community through that as well. Were there any challenges that you felt when you were first kind of breaking into the industry, being a young woman with no background in the sport of horse racing? I was actually terrified when I first started. Like more than anything, it was just really daunting because you have no idea what your options are. And growing up as a little horse girl, you think your only plan uh, to pursue a career with horses is being a veterinarian or a barn manager or something along those lines. And so then you step into racing and it's like, oh my goodness, there's so many avenues that I can pursue. But I was actually really refreshed to find that people are so helpful in racing. I've had so many mentors and people that have helped me over the years that have done more than they ever needed to do. So I think if you show interest and you put your head down and work hard, then you'll be rewarded for that. And it actually isn't as daunting as it might seem. I love hearing that because I have a very similar experience to you, actually. I mean, no background in the world of horse racing and People always ask me, you know, did I always want to do the job that I currently have? And I didn't even know that that job existed, you know, until I got into horse racing. I had no idea how I might be able to be involved. So it it is amazing. There really are so many opportunities. And one thing I love, and I'm sure you feel the same way about racing, is you're never done learning about it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I thought initially I wanted to be a vet and I worked in the detention barn at Laurel. And then I started learning about, you know, the writing side of things. I was like, oh, maybe I want to go be a writer. I'm good at talking to people. And then it snowballed into the sales. And now I'm like, oh, I actually missed the racing. <laughs> so now I'm back. But I think that's what's great. And, you know, I work a uh, niece, Mont Pleasure, who is with Amplify and the Key Foundation. She's one of my best friends, and we just went to dinner and we're talking about this the other night. How yeah, a lot of colleges and stuff where you have equine programs, girls don't even know that this is an option. And mm-hmm. there's people who are really talented in marketing or really talented in sales or graphic design that can come pursue a real career in racing and still kind of be in touch with the horses. And I think we need to do a better job of educating colleges on that as well and getting the word out that you can come be really successful in racing and not necessarily have to run a barn or be a vet to do that. 
I love that. And I very much agree. And there, there really are a lot of opportunities and, and chances to grow within the sport. And you've done a great job at it. And on, on top of your day job, you also have mm-hmm. a podcast, Riders Up, with with Autry. Um, tell me a little bit a, about what you and Autry Graham have done together and some of your goals with the Riders Up podcast that you do. Yeah, so we started Riders Up a little over a year ago now, which is crazy to say. We were a bit bored last winter, and this is kind of sitting on the coronavirus pandemic kicking off, and we were just Mm -hmm. in our apartment, and Autry listens to a lot of mainstream podcasts uh, that appeal to women and just people in life, and I'll listen to a lot of, you know, handicapping racing podcasts, and we were just sitting there talking about the contrast between the two (laughs) and how a lot A lot of the generic racing podcasts are, you know, pretty monotone and focused on one element of the game. And then you listen to these fun other ones and you're like cracking up the whole time. So we wanted to find a way to kind of morph those. Um, And so we just kicked it off. Taylor Canberra, who is uh, Richard Mandela's assistant, was the exercise rider for Omaha Beach, was our first one. And we had so much fun with it that we just kept rolling. Uh, And it's been great. It's been really cool to see the reception from everyone uh, that actually likes it, you know, from our random (laughs) idea in our apartment. Uh, But we'd like to keep kind of chugging on with it and just exposing the real stories and real people in racing is our objective. And so we've had so many different people from trainers to jockeys to bloodstock agents uh and it's been really fun so we're looking forward to another big year of that uh we're hoping racing can get back so we can take people to the races with us and promote a little bit more on that platform as well and uh, from personal experience, it is a lot of fun. I mean, any <laughs> I, I was able to be a guest in any podcast that welcomes me to drink wine while we oh, do yeah. it. I am all in for it. So I love it and making it fun and making it approachable, you know, to young people maybe that um, want to hear the stories and the stories are a big part of it. Um, and your story continuing now starting back as we circle uh, back to your new position with Margo, what are some of the, the goals that you have personally and professionally within the industry as you kick off this next chapter? Uh, I think my long-term goals, I really enjoy selling horses. So I think eventually I'd love to have my own consignment and a huge part of building a full consignment portfolio is focusing on the mixed sales and the breeding stock sales and trying to work with, you know, the end product, I guess you could say. And so the racing and breaking side is something I've really wanted to learn more about, which is why this job at Margo was so exciting for me. Uh, so I'd like to spend quite a bit of time here and meet some new people and they have the best clients in the game. And hopefully I can kick off my own thing somewhere down the line. So we'll see. <laughs> oh, I wish you the best of luck with that. And, and, Keeping on that front, I mean, how much do you follow the sales right now? And since this is a podcast largely, not not completely, but largely <laughs> dedicated to the sales, maybe give us a little bit uh, of your take, maybe some things that you've noticed as far as the horse sales so far and some things we should look out for in the future. Definitely. Well, I follow the sales very closely. I feel like you have to 
follow the sales and follow the racing and everything to keep up with what's going on. But I obviously we just had our first two year old season or sale of the season. And I think everyone was blown away at how strong it was. Mm -hmm. uh, the sales season last year was one of the most challenging seasons I think we'll ever see in our careers with coronavirus. And mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I think it forced people to be really innovative. And I think we came out of it a lot stronger than we went in. So I think at large, people walked away from the sales season last year, pretty dang happy. Uh, and I know doing the breeding stock sales this year, it just felt alive when we were out there January and February. People were active in the market. Horses were selling well. Uh, and now rolling into the two-year-old season, I think we've seen that as well. A lot of people internationally who were unable or maybe a bit nervous to buy horses in September were very active in March. I mean, the Japanese presence was so strong, which I think is exciting. And there's a, this crop of uh, freshman sires is super strong. I think you know, Practical Joke led the March sale, and then you have horses like American Freedom and Classic mm -hmm. Empire, and I mean, the list goes on and on. So I think we're in for an exciting season um, for the two-year-old sales, and then I think the yearling sales will be even more exciting. We have the Justifies and all these yeah. exciting horses coming up. So I think we're going to be sitting on a really exciting year, and racing's coming back and life is good again. <laughs> yes, indeed. As we, we didn't get to have the Saratoga yearling sale last year. Um, in Saratoga, like normal, the New York bread sale, any of those things that are always kind of like a highlight in the summer. So mm -hmm. really looking forward to that. And you're absolutely right that the morale in racing is definitely up. But Shana, it was so fun talking to you. I hope to have you on again and we'll we'll do it with wine next time for sure Perfect. and get Autry <laughs> on as well. Um, but wishing you all the best with the new position with Margot Farm and uh, thank you for joining me today. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. So pleased to have my friend Bob Edwards from E5 Racing joining me on the show today with a very special horse, an exciting young horse, and collaborate pointing towards this weekend's Florida Derby. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Keisha. Happy to be here. Now, Collaborate, uh, of course, heading to the Florida Derby. Uh, you own him in partnership with Three Chimneys. Tell me a little bit about uh, the process of finding this horse, of course, purchased uh, with Mike Ryan, a, a guy you've had a lot of success with. And just tell me a little bit about how he came to be racing in your colors. Sure, absolutely. We were in Saratoga, um, you know, source of a lot of the good horses that I purchased over the years at Mike. And we were looking at other horses, and I just saw this monster kind of walk by and he just skipped across the ground. And I said, Mike, what's going on with this horse? And he said, it's, you know, big into mischief. Said, we got to look at him and just kind of all the boxer checked, just looking at him there at that moment. It just felt like, you know, he had just that quality about him, the way he kind of had his mind, the way he was going about his business, the way he was just skipping across the surface. And, uh, you know, as luck would have it, three chimneys wanted to stay in and uh, I had a partner. Purchased uh, for 600000 at the Phasic Tipton New York Saratoga Select Yearling Sale in 2019. Um, tell me a little bit, you mentioned some of that success of finding horses up there in that Saratoga Yearling Sale. How, why it is that you enjoy buying yearlings at a sale like that? Oh, I mean, Saratoga sales, it's, it's an unbelievable start of the season. You know, you're up in Saratoga, you got that Saratoga buzz going, you know, you feel really good about yourself and then everybody rolls into town normal years for that auction. And it's just, it's exciting. Uh, the quality horses that come through there are phenomenal. And we, we picked up rushing fall there who ended up being a really super horse for us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we really like the Saratoga auction. 
and buy into mischief. And then, you know, you brought this horse in 2019. And then you see what happened with that sire, with Authentic winning the Derby and the Breeders' Cup Classic. Was that fun watching, knowing that you had one of his offspring? Yeah, we, I mean, everybody loves it to mischief, right? He, he can't do anything wrong right now. Um, yeah, it's it's always exciting to see, you know, horses that, you know, you have a connection to at some level win because you think you could do that as well. Now, Mike Ryan, uh, a guy, as I mentioned, that you've had a lot of success with as far as uh, being your, your main bloodstock agent. Tell me a little bit of, about your relationship with Mike and how it first started and kind of how you two work together. Absolutely. I met Mike a number of years ago. It's probably six years now. Um, we were up in Saratoga for a family reunion. My wife is from Saratoga. Her family all lives up in Saratoga. And my daughter, Cassie, and I went to visit a business partner of mine that lived on Fifth Ave. And he said, let me, let me take you to the backside. And never been to the backside. I was you know, always sitting up on a lawn chair or at a picnic table with the family, drinking some beers out of a cooler and, and kind of bumbling my way through a, uh, a racing form. And you know, we went to the backside. And it was magical. As you know, I mean, it's very special. If you don't have the opportunity to go back there and see how all the horses are being taken care of and, and love on the horses and just, you know, feel the energy back there, you know, you're missing a lot of the sport. And we were just hooked at that moment. We kind of rolled in, you know, from there, walked down to the auction. Um, the gentleman introduced me to Niall Brandon, who kind of introduced Mike Ryan. And we just followed Mike around all day. And he was great. I mean, I'm, you know, and you see me all the time. I'm, I'm wearing, you know, ripped up shorts, a baseball hat, a t-shirt, Vans, you know, and, and Mike just kind of guided us through and was great about it and, you know, explained everything, took the time to go through things. And you know, we ended up picking up our first horse at the auction. There it was a New York bread. And uh, I was actually in a wedding and I had to dip out during, uh, during the reception to, uh, to do the bidding on the phone with Mike. And, uh, you know, from that point forward, it just, it's been a really great ride for us. A lot of success early on. I know you and I have talked about this quite a bit in a story I'm sure a lot of people keep coming back to. But I mean, early on, you know, like your first year of of ownership and you've got rushing fall and good magic and the Breeders' Cup juvenile races and, and new money honey prior to that. I mean, talk a little bit about how exciting that was and and how that made you hungry for more within the game. So we were we were really lucky. We were exposed to our first win, you know, the Intercontinental at Belmont. Yeah. Um, with Zendaya mare that I bought in, in a November sale um, that was actually, you know, kind of broke up at Binary by Ian Brennan. So Ian knew the horse. My, my horse are all at Stone Street. And, you know, we liked the horse. You know, she, she looked good on paper. And, and I asked Chad, I said, Chad, do you think you can, you know, train her? He said, absolutely. And we raced down here at Gulfstream, lost the ship, and then went to Belmont and won the Intercontinental with her. And that was our first win. I had no idea how to act, what to look like, what to do. And from that point forward, I mean, we'd just been hooked. Breeders' Cup wins, but obviously the Kentucky Derby, as we know in the sport, is kind of the pinnacle. I mean, what's the emotion like this year? Obviously, Collaborate has a few steps to get there, but thinking that potentially you may have another horse that could get in the starting gate for the Kentucky Derby. Uh, it gives me goosebumps just to think about, you know, having an opportunity to run to the Derby again. Um, you know, I didn't think we'd be relevant for a long time after, you know, rushing fall, retired. So it's it's super exciting for us to, you know, have an opportunity to be in the discussion to to think, you know, maybe we're in that first Saturday in May and, and we have a horse that we really like. You know, trainer Safi Joseph thinks the world of him. Um, Tyler is has done a great job with him and, and you know, I remember Tyler breezed him for me and he said, I had to f- take a few minutes to collect myself before I called you. This wow. horse is a monster, you know, and it's, it's all exciting stuff. And, you know, it's, it's what everybody dreams to do. I remember seeing him in his first race, which was sprinting. And I said, this horse is amazing. He just, he needs to go longer. And then he came back and he was just so dominant in his second start. Um, I mean, 
talk a little bit about what it's like watching your horse break his maiden during the championship meet at Gulfstream. I mean, you guys are based in Florida as well. What that feeling is like watching your horse be so dominant on the track. I mean, it's, it's, it's once again, it's it, everybody's dream to, you know, you, you love winning, but you like winning like that, um, where the horse is geared down. He wins by 12 and a half. You know, really, it, it didn't look like it was much effort. He's got, you know, for, a, for about a 1200 pound horse, he's got a really high cruising speed. And, you know, he does everything right. You know, he's, he's kind of, he's peaking as we're moving forward. Every race seems to get better. That first race was, you know, it was a really big learning experience. It was raining, you know, he was all over the place. He's a, he's a, he's a lineman, you know, running a sprint. Um, and then, you know, we kind of got him in some better weather and some good company and, you know, everything happened right. Tyler did a magnificent job, you know, getting the perfect trip for him and the horse just coasted for us. And now as this podcast is largely geared towards sales pedigrees, I mean, when you, go to the sales. Are you thinking about, I want to find that derby horse? Or are you kind of thinking more open-minded, looking for just anything? So my, my model is, is um, picking up mares. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, we are fillies and turn them into brood mares at some level. So that, that's how it all started. It started, you know, going after fillies and, you know, keeping those good pedigrees in the system, breeding them or putting them in foal and selling them. So I, I typically, I buy one or two colts a year and I, I typically partner on them. Uh, this year, this year I have two Colts that I own myself. Um, one is with Wesley right now. Um, and then I have one, a Nyquist that I bred that's up at Stone Street. And then I own um, Good Magic's full brother with Barbara Banky and Stone Street crew. Oh, cool. But I, I typically go for the, go try to uh, promote my breeding programs. We have 23 mares right now, um, 20 here in the States, 19 in Kentucky, one in Florida, and three over in Ireland. Fantastic. Branching out into European bloodstock as well. Tell me a little bit about that venture is um, kind of one of the themes on my show that I've been talking about is looking at the influence of European pedigrees and people going to European sales to bring them to race over here in the US. But you're looking at breeding over in Europe. Tell me a little bit about that. Fantastic. Uh, you know, place to breed in Ireland. I mean, the grass is green. The people are great. They're, you know, great horse from there. You get the opportunity to get some of those European pedigrees. I brought a horse that I brought back uh, this year. I sold one at uh, Tats, um, Addison Dia, Frankel, and I brought back a Loop de Vega out of a Galileo mare, mm-hmm. and it's up at Stone Street. And she looks like she could be something, you know, anything. So fingers crossed that we have, you know, that really nice cross. Loop de Vega's done well here in, in the U.S., and we're hoping that uh, we're part of that luck train. And you seem to really enjoy looking at the pedigrees too. And I know, you know, you were just like a sponge and, and, and knowing you now for a couple of years and when you first got in the industry, I mean, how, how much, how enjoyable is that part of it for you and coming up with those crosses and now being so much more involved in the breeding side of things? It's, this is a great time of year, right? So last year, you know, we're kind of going through all the crosses, trying to, trying to breed commercially, trying to breed to race. So you kind of mix it up. So I, I knew I wanted to keep some of these horses but I also wanted to, you know, sell some of these horses. So you got to look at the commercial kind of pedigrees and what are selling. And then I had, you know, eight or nine good magic shares too, right? So I got to breed good magic as well, try to make a stallion. So we're trying to make mares. We're trying to make stallions. We're trying to get, you know, horses in the right place. We either sell them or get them to a trainer where they can move up the mare and, and really promote our breeding program. And how is good magic doing? Son of Curlin, of course, a champion juvenile and now standing next to his daddy um, over at Hill and Dale. And, and from what I can tell, it seems like he's been really well received. Unbelievable horse. You know, mentally, he's, he's, he's always been just a really good horse. And we got the opportunity to see him Breeders' Cup weekend, took the family up to Hill and Dale. What a spectacular facility they have now. And, uh, you know, got to love on good magic and kind of see him a little bit. And it was, it was just, you know, just nice to see him. He's filled out. He looks the part. And, you know, we're looking to see runners next year. So fingers crossed. 
Was that ever something that you had anticipated that you would be able to campaign a horse and then be able to support him as a stallion? Was that kind of a goal for you down the road? I mean, that, that's the dream, right? I, I was anticipating to get something this early in our career, but you know, we, we've been lucky and, and hopefully he fires. I mean, he's, he's done everything right as a racehorse. And if we can take some of that, you know, and, and transfer it to the babies, you know, the sky's the limit for him. I want to talk about Rushing Fall because I know that she is such a special horse to you and your whole family. I mean, a grade one winner every year from two to five and just the absolute stellar campaign that she had throughout her entire career. What does she mean to you? Oh, I mean, I mean even, even when you mention her name, we, we still get goosebumps. You know, we have pictures of her all over the house, my office. You know, she, she put us on the map, you know, really put us on the map. She, she was a special horse, you know, one of a few horses to accomplish what she's accomplished over her career. You know, every time she went to a workout, she went to a race, you know, she was a consummate professional. She, she was a, you know, a, an athlete, true and true, and, and a phenomenal specimen and super happy to ever have an opportunity to have her in our stable. And she was bred, I believe, to Galileo after her racing career? I think that's where they went. Yeah, she went out to Ireland. So I'm assuming that's where she went. That's, that's what I heard. That's exciting. That'll be fun to see it's for sure. Amazing cross, I, yeah. Yeah, I know, right? And she, I mean, she was so special. You've had just some really, really great horses. I mean, what are some of the things that you still hope to accomplish? Of course, now you've got Collaborate with some big dreams there, but what are some things that you hope to accomplish throughout in the industry? I mean, the Diana was a, a big box to check for us last year. And, you know, luckily everything went our way and rushing fall had a great race. It was a, it was a, it was a really, it was a great race, you know, running, running and, uh, and having the opportunity to be there. Um, I believe it was probably our, one of our first races of the year, one of our only races of the year that we attended. And uh, it was a special moment. You know, I'd, I'd loved obviously, you know, to be in the Derby or any of the triple crown. I, I think the Travers, you know, is a mm-hmm. phenomenal race and obviously the Florida Derby living in Florida, having the opportunity to win here at home is, is something special as well. And tell me a bit about your relationship with Safi as we head into the Florida Derby. I mean, as you said, you're based down here in Florida. You've had quite a few more horses now with Safi, who's been having a really, really strong presence here in Florida. What what a great, you know, young trainer. You know, he's 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 done everything right. He's uh, you know, he's a he's a true professional, loves his horses. Um, obviously his, his dad is with him. So you get kind of two for one, you know, his wife Morgan works with, you know, works together and gets us the videos. It, it's a, it's a great family enterprise and that's kind of what we are as well. And that kind of checks some boxes for us. You know, I, I can't say enough good things about him. We've, we've had a really good relationship thus far and uh, look, look forward to keep working with him. Would it be extra special for you to have your horse give him a big win like the Florida Derby as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, you like to be, you know, somewhere on somebody's resume early, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So Florida Derby, and that's a lot of points on the line, then potentially on to Kentucky Derby. And you're thinking Travers, I mean, big plans for this horse oh, for I, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hoping my fingers are crossed as we're talking, you know, I, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. If the horse stays sound and can, keeps moving forward, you know, the sky's the limit. It's, you know, it's, it's a great time of year. You know, the babies are healthy right now. If it's Stone Street, you know, we, we have a horse that's running the Florida Derby. You know how easy this could be a, uh, you know, a, a, a bad week. So, you know, fingers crossed, everything keeps moving forward. Well, Bob, so much fun to talk to you. Best of luck this weekend. Will I see you guys out here at the track? Absolutely. We can't wait to uh, come and attend and, and watch our boy run. Best of luck. Thank you so much, Bob. Looking forward to seeing you this weekend. Thanks, Keisha.
just a few days out from the Florida Derby when I'm recording this. Looking forward to that race. As always, a marquee event of the Gulf Stream Park Championship meet of the Kentucky Derby prep races. It's been incredibly fruitful for horses going on into those Triple Crown races. Even Tis the Law last year going on to win the Belmont Stakes and the Travers. And um, wishing the best of luck to Bob and his team this year. But um, excited about the Gulf Stream Basic Tipton sale the Wednesday after the Florida Derby at the end of March. Always an exciting one because it's a select sale and we'll get to see some really big pedigrees and some really outstanding physicals as well. So we'll be talking about that, of course, on next week's show and looking ahead to some of the action happening up in New York as that's where I'll be shifting my tack, if you will. Um, but as always, really appreciate you all joining me on the show. If you have any suggestions, requests, questions, send them over to me on social media. Also want to remind everybody uh, some notices from our friends at Lone Star Park. Nominations are open for Lone Star Park's Lone Star Million Day card. Memorial Day, Monday, May 31st. Five stakes totaling $1.1 million. The Grade 3 Sexton Mile Purse increases from $300,000 to $400,000. Lone Star Million Day and the Ouija Board Distaff return after a 10-year hiatus. And there's also three new stakes. The Texas Derby, Chamberlain Bridge, and the Memorial Day Sprint. They're all free to nominate nominations close Saturday May 22nd so be sure to check out all of that from our friends over at Lone Star Park please be sure to share this episode with anybody that you think would enjoy it follow the races this weekend follow the sale coming up next week and as always we'll see you next time on In the Ring with Acacia Courtney